one. What a great time of worship, just opening our hearts to the Lord. And uh, just uh, kudos to you guys for coming out in the snow and the icy roads and drive past other churches that normally have Wednesday night services and they don't. I'm thinking, ah, we're here and we're worshiping the Lord. It's awesome. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 4 and 5 this evening. A couple of announcements before we get into that. Men's prayer breakfast is this Saturday. So Gary's excited about it because we're getting it catered, if you would. And so uh, it's going to be really good. So 8.30 here at the church on Saturday. And then our couple's dinner, regularly scheduled for the 9th. We moved it to actually on Valentine's Day, Wednesday. So that Wednesday, February 14th, we'll not be having our regular Wednesday night service. That'll be for the couple's dinner. So for you guys that are single, I'm sorry. Um, but... Uh, that's the only way I can get uh, Pastor Dennis and his wife Donna are going to come out and they're going to share with us at the couple's dinner and, and I think that's going to be great and that's the only time he was available they're doing a, a retreat the weekend before and so um, so we decided to move to a Wednesday that way I can get some board meetings out of the way as well when he gets out that I was supposed to have back in September but I was stuck in Puerto Rico so anyway all that to say September or February 14th rather is is our uh, couple's dinner so With that, Joshua chapter 4, let's go before the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight, just this opportunity to gather, to open up your word. Lord, to know that your Holy Spirit is here, and as we dig in your word, you're going to speak to our hearts on things that you want us to look at and know in our hearts, Lord. And so we pray that we'd have open ears to receive all that you have have for us, Lord. Give us not only um, information, but application in our lives. And we thank you for just the story of Joshua and the courage and the faith that, that he had and, and what we're going to read tonight, Lord. And we just praise you for this time. Bless the children's ministry downstairs, Lord, uh, as the teachers just share with our little ones and older ones, Lord, just that they would have open hearts as well just to receive from you tonight. Thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you remember being a kid and, and uh really looking forward to and anticipating an, an important day, you know, a, a good day. Maybe your birthday was coming up or maybe it was Christmas. Maybe it was a, a trip to Disneyland. You knew like in six months you were going to go to Disneyland. It was planned and you couldn't wait. You're counting the, the months and, and the weeks and the days and the hours. You long for the day. Suddenly the day is there. Now imagine, if you would, what it was like for the children of Israel. Imagine for them finally moving out of the desert across to the Jordan River. They've been waiting for this a long, long time. And they're finally there. Most of those, uh, most, most have been born in the desert as a part of that new generation that had been replaced, replaced the older ones who refused, um, to trust God. And think about this Joshua and Caleb. I mean, they waited even longer. I mean, these guys at this point are about 80 years old. So they've been waiting a long, long time. And if you remember last time we looked at on the eve of crossing over, Joshua says to the people in chapter 3, verse 5, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Man, just the excitement of that. Set yourself apart, he says. Get prepared. God is going to do something absolutely amazing that's going to blow your mind and it's going to be talked about forever. And he did just that. If you remember, the water of the Jordan River miraculously, mysteriously gathered up and would not flow. And the, and the priest stood in the middle of the Jordan River on the dry, dry ground with the Ark of the Covenant until everyone 
was able to cross over. Two million strong people crossing over. It was awesome. But it wasn't just crossing over the Jordan that was so special. It was receiving the land that God has promised to them by God. God has promised them. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it's not walking through the parking lot of Disneyland that's so wonderful, though it can be. It's getting into the park. Getting saved is wonderful. It's everything. But then it's all about living the Christian life in victory, living the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a comparison we can make with the book of Joshua. As we've seen here, the promised land, it's really not heaven because there's, there's too many battles that are going to took place in the promised land. But the promised land for us is living in victory through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here were the children of Israel. In chapter 4, they're miraculously crossing over the Jordan River, entering the promised land. They made it. The day had come. No turning back. Now what? Well, God has some new instructions for them. Look now at verse 1 of chapter 4, all the way down to verse 8. And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. Here before God says, here God says, before you do anything else, I want you to remember what an important day this is. He says, one man from each tribe wants you to go back, go to the middle, middle of the Jordan, and each one take a stone from that riverbed uh, right around where the, the priests were standing with the Ark of the Covenant, and you grab that, and you place it you, you, in the camp where you camp tonight at the place I want you to set up these stones as a memorial. And they did that. But then Joshua takes it a step further. Look now, verses 9 through 14. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, and the place where the feet of the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood. And they are there to this day. So the priest who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed over. Verse 11, Then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the ark of the Lord and the priest crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war, crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. So again, we see that one man from each of the 12 tribes were to go back to the middle of Jordan and take a stone from the riverbed. The 12 stones on the land served as a, a visible memorial of remembrance that God had cut off the waters of the Jordan and allowed his people to cross over. 
But then we also read that Joshua took it a step further and set up 12 more stones and placed them around the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark standing there in the middle of the dried up river, Jordan River. Now, what, what purpose would these memorial, these monuments serve? Well, the 12 stones on the land served as a visible memorial of the remembrance that God had cut off the waters of the Jordan and allowed the people to cut over. The 12 stones were a reminder of what God has done. So when they would begin to question you know, maybe their faith as, as the battles they would face and the struggles they would, would come across in the promised land. They could look back and say, listen, God brought us here. It wasn't ourselves. There's a purpose in what God has done and we need to keep going. See, in our lives, we need memorials. We need testimonies, diaries, pictures, remembrances of the miracles that God has done in our lives. To say, well, this is what God has done. So when, when times get tough, we can go back and say, listen, God was there to see me through He's going to be here in the future. Warren Wiersbe writes this, though, concerning memorials. He says, There's nothing wrong with memorials, provided they don't become religious idols that turn our hearts from God, and provided they don't, they don't so link us to the past that we fail to serve God in the present. Glorifying the past is a good way to petrify the present and rob the church of power. The next generations need reminders of what God has done in history, but these reminders must also strengthen their faith and draw them closer to the Lord. So we need... You know, reminders, you know, testimonies. But let me say, not all of them are to be public. Joshua here had placed 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, which would be underwater as soon as the rivers filled back up again with water, as soon as it resumed its flow. See, Joshua was setting up a private memorial, I believe, that only God could see. In the same way, God has given the church two memorials. One is public, and the other one is private, just between God and us. In baptism, you know, we go out, water baptism, it's out for all the world to see, you know, and, 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 you know but, but then uh, you know, what God has done in our lives, it's an outward sign of an inward doing. But in communion, we memorialize privately what Christ has done for us. But notice what other reason God gave Joshua for setting up this outside memorial. Look at verse 6, back at verse 6. This was that something that when the children asked their dads, what is the meaning of the stones? The fathers can say, this is where the Lord has done some great things. Now we're going to look at more of that in a moment. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, command the priest who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priest saying, come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priest who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all of its banks as before. Don't you love that? It's all dry, it's all dry, and as soon as they get off the banks of the Jordan, it's filled up again. I mean, it's just, just to prove the fact that this totally was a miracle. This wasn't some act of nature that, that happens this time every year, you know, with flash floods or springtime. It's nothing like that. Kind of reminds you of the people who say that Moses crossed the Red Sea, that it was low tide and there was only two feet of water when Moses crossed the Red Sea. If that were the case, then how did the Egyptian army all die and drown in two feet of water? This is a full-fledged act of God, and God wanted the people to remember it. So as soon as the priest stepped out of the Jordan onto the dry land, the Jordan filled up again. I love it. Now look at verse 19. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. 
For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before until we had crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord that is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, I like again the fact that in verse 21 that the reason for setting up the memorials was so that when kids asked, what are these stones, the fathers would talk to their children about God. I think about when Jesus was, was uh, when, when children were brought to Jesus for blessing, that the, the pronoun Mark uses makes it clear that it was the fathers who brought them in Mark 10, 14. The fathers brought their kids to the Lord. Now, obviously, when a father is unable or unwilling to talk to his kids about spiritual things, the mother has to take that role. But how much better for the mom and the dad to teach their kids the ways of God? You know, God had promised earlier in Deuteronomy 11, verse 18, the responsibility of teaching the children. It says there in verse uh, 18 through 21 in Deuteronomy 11, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your, between your eyes. And it says this, You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. See, the Lord is making it very clear here in Deuteronomy, there in Joshua, the purpose of, of God working and moving and setting memorials is so that, that our children would know the word of the Lord, would know what God has done. We have the responsibility as parents to teach our children God's word. And even though we may get frustrated with them, we need to be those that share what God's word says and love and allow the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. You know, I found even as my kids get older and, and almost all out of the house, you know, I'm still sharing the word with them. Oh, you know, Dad, I don't know about this. Well, you know, the Bible says this and we need to do that. And Now, certainly our job isn't to be the Holy Spirit, but we need to teach our kids the word so that they can discern through the work of the Holy Spirit what, what is right and what is wrong. And then our kids will have victory in their own lives and learn to fear the Lord as we see here for the children of Israel. To teach them the mighty things that God has done throughout Scripture brings them so much courage and faith and trust in God. See, here in Gilgal, whenever they would come to this memorial, it was a reminder of what God has done and would continue to do in a person's life who trusts Him. I mean, that's what the end of chapter 4 tells us in verse 24, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord that is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The purpose, the, the plan from God. Now, chapter 5, they're in the land. They made it. Now what? Look at verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. They freaked out, in other words. You can put that in your Bible. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, here's this, this mass of people getting ready to come across. But not only that, you have a, a God that can control nature. I mean, it just caught, it totally dried up the, the Jordan River. I think of when Jesus climbed the sea in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, and it says that the disciples feared exceedingly and said to one another, one another who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey them? He is God. 
And the God who creates nature can control it. Now the, the people, the Canaanites, you know, they're seeing these guys coming in, the Amorites, and their hearts are melting in fear. Now God had promised that would happen back in Deuteronomy 11, but now it's come to pass. The, the fear the Israelites had, in fact, in chapter 2, verse 9, we know it started back then where Rahab said to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. They heard the stories of the Red Sea parting. They've heard the miraculous victories won by the Israelites. And now the Canaanites, they're terrified. The Israelites are in their land. What's going to happen? I mean, any thought of these these. Things that had happened that, that were just rumors quickly disappeared when they got report around the about the Jordan River stopping up and allowing them to cross over. So at this point, you would think with the Canaanites all afraid, the Amorites all in fear, now would be the time for the children of Israel to attack. Now would be the time to go for it. I mean, this would be the time to strike. While there was fear in the enemies, their enemies would be at their weakest. But God had other plans. Look at verses 2 through 6. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So here we have the children of Israel. Joshua, Lord, is it time for us to attack? Wait a minute. You want us to do What? I mean, from a, from a human standpoint, you know, the right time to strike of the strongholds of Canaan would, was right then after they crossed the river. I mean, these idolatrous, idolatrous, idolatrous people would be demoralized. Uh, they, they were freaked out. Again, not only this whole red, thing, red Sea thing 40 years previously filled them with fear, but, but again, they, they heard and they saw what was going on. So it would have been the right time for Israel to launch an all-out offensive, but at least that's the way man's strategy would see it. That's the way man would think, well, now has got to be the time. But God is not confined to man's methods. Let me say something else. God's not in a hurry. God's not in a hurry. Neither is he behind in time. In fact, he knows exactly when the right time it is to strike. So, too, in our lives, that we need to be aware of being pressured to act immediately in some situation without having time to consult the Lord about it. See, that the Lord doesn't put pressure on us to reach decisions without giving us the opportunities for reflection and prayer. He'll give us those opportunities. So where does the pressure come from? Well, from our enemy, Satan. See, if he, if he can't stop us from doing God's will, then what he's going to do is try to get us to push ahead of God's will. He'll put you know, pressure on us to do something drastic. Because often we feel the time to strike is when the iron is hot. Now, there's a certain amount of truth in that. But we need to be careful in that area. Just because it seems like a good decision at the time, we still need to seek the Lord. Because let me tell you, the enemy is very good at presenting circumstances for us to jump on and get out of God's will. 
mean, for a limited time only, you can get this car for just $200 a month. That's it. Just sign on the dotted line. Well, $200 a month. That's great. You sign away until you realize it's $200 a month for the rest of your life. What did I do? What did I get myself into? But it sounded so good. It had to be from the Lord. No, you know, God gives us time to pray about things and to seek Him on things. Now, let me say this. There are times that, that we possibly should act faster. But, you know, we, we do. But as far as I'm concerned, I would rather be a little bit slow when it comes to making certain decisions because I, I, I want to know that I know that I am in the will of God. But here's what I know. God knows my heart in these matters, and He knows my desire to be in His will. And so God, knowing me as well as He does, I'm sure that He will not allow any opportunity to slip out of my hands as I'm praying and seeking His direction and His, his, his purpose. Uh, you know, if I'm praying and praying, God's going to, well, maybe you waited too long praying with me. Sorry, can't do it for you now. No, God's not going to do that. He will allow me the time I need to reach the decision I believe is according to His will. I have to say this, certainly this last year, I mean, with the selling of the church property and, and buying the, the, the new property and what we should do, we prayed a lot. We sought the Lord, you know, over and over again. Many opportunities came up, different things, availabilities came up, and, and, and thankfully, you know, we looked at them, and it just wasn't me seeking the Lord. You know, I, I have a church board that consists of Pastor Dennis, who's going to be coming out in California. He's our treasurer. You know, on, on the board, Pastor Jeff Adam Joplin's on the board, and, and that board is responsible for the financial and the business decisions for the church as we seek the Lord. But, but I'm also blessed to have the men's leadership in this church, the elders, as we get together and got together and prayed and sought the Lord, and then just at the right time, at the right moment after praying and seeking the Lord, we put an offering on the property, and we got it. And God supernaturally, powerfully, miraculously gave us the property. My point is this, I'm convinced that when you seek the Lord first, you're going to be protected from making the wrong decisions and God will lead you in the right ones as we wait upon the Lord. So it was with the case of the people of Israel just after they crossed the Jordan. Some might have been in a hurry, oh, let's go, but God was not. Delay at this point was God's will. I think, again, sometimes we miss God's best by being in a hurry to do things when, when there should be more time looking on the condition of our own hearts you know, doing should come from being. We must take time to fellowship with God in order that our conduct will, our conduct will please Him. And, and understand that God's thoughts are much higher than our thoughts. You know, we don't always have everything figured out. And, 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 and Joshua was getting his orders from the Lord. He wasn't getting his orders from the military experts. So instead of, of jumping on the tactical advantage of the Canaanites' fresh fear, Joshua obeys the Lord, the Lord to circumcise the man. Look at verse 7 now. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised, circumcised on the way. So it was, when they finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Now again, we've read this already, as all the males left Egypt, originally they were circumcised. But they had not been faithful to circumcise their own children that were born during those 40 years in the wilderness. Even though the Lord commanded them to do so, they didn't do it. Let me say, as a parent, circumcision is a difficult thing to have done to your newborn son. Perhaps that's why Moses failed to circumcise his son. Do you remember his story? Exodus 4, 24-26 concerning Moses. It says there, on the way to Egypt at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him with, and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with the foreskin and said, Now you are a bridegroom of blood to me. 
When she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to the circumcision. After that, the Lord left him alone. Man. See, God had, God had, had made it clear in the law that he said to Abraham, uh, the, and, and, you know, that they should be circumcised. And Moses had neglected to perform it. And the Lord was actually going to kill Moses for his disobedience. Until his wife, Zipporah, stepped in and figured out that the reason Moses was afflicted was because he had failed to circumcise her son. So she did it instead of him. And, and obviously, you know, she was not pleased that she had to do this because she called him a bridegroom of blood. Another translation said, you're a bloody man to me. You know, just, just like, you know, man. All that to say, man, it's a good thing when our wives look out for us. Sometimes they just see things a little bit clearer than we do. And then, you know, when they do, we, you know, we can be thankful for it. But, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they save your life when you're driving in a car. Watch out for that car, you know. And Anyway, moving on. Genesis 17, starting in verse 10. God had told Abraham, the sign of the covenant between me and you will be circumcision. Your descendants and the people in your house are to do this. Have it done on the eighth day of the boy's life. It says in verse 14 of Genesis 17, But any man who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. He had broken my covenant. So they had broken God's covenant. They weren't doing what God called them to do. Now, now physically, circumcision has many benefits. And God's prescription for it to be done on the eighth day of a boy's life is medically superior to any other time. But spiritually... How does that speak to our hearts? What does it symbolize? Well, spiritually, circumcision is the cutting away of the flesh to pursue the things of God, the things of the Spirit. The Israelites had, had consecrated themselves before crossing the Jordan. They, they you know, set themselves apart, uh, you know, they'd washed and abstained from physical pleasure. But now, having entered the promised land, before God would allow them to possess it, they must be obedient to cut away at the flesh. And, and, and this translates into the way the Christian walk should be. As we looked at last time, as we cross over into the Spirit-filled, abundant, victorious Christian life, our promised land, we should devote a period of time to being washed in the water of the Word and spend time in prayer. Then God, you know, wonderfully fills you with His Holy Spirit and you cross into this new land. But before you can continue on and possess the promises, there's a flesh that we have to deal with, something we have to deal with all the time. Tall Paul. Paul talks about this in Romans 2.29 when he says, Circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, we need to circumcise our hearts. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 16.24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Paul put it this way in Romans 13.14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its less. So we're to deny the flesh, cut, cut away at it. And it's difficult, but it's also a prerequisite to being victorious in the Christian life. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 6.11, we're to reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, it's that, that appetite that we have for the flesh nature that needs to be cut off through the power of the Holy Spirit. This, this self-indulgence, this, this, this pride of the flesh, this secret pride, secret ambitions, secret uh, or self-assumptions, not only that are obvious, but, but those that are hidden. I think if we truly check our hearts, we often will find that the reason we get our feelings hurt is due to that, that secret pride that we have in our hearts, our ambition that, that's, that's not been fed by some praise from someone. It's that self, self-confidence that takes the place of our confidence in God that needs to be dealt with. 
Maybe it's our, our feelings of superiority in regards to others are all a part of a flesh-filled life. Maybe you think we're more intellectual than others or more spiritual as a result than we become critical of others. And it's those types of things that can hinder our spiritual life and they need to be dealt with. They need to be mortified or put to death by the Spirit, Paul would say. Now, by Joshua obeying the Lord and allowing the men to be circumcised, understand it was putting them in a vulnerable position. Instead of conquering and with the momentum they gained from the parting and crossing of the Jordan, the Israelites, they were weak at least for three days. No doubt, the Israelites had to remember the story found in Genesis 34. Maybe you've just read that if you're in your daily walks. Remember Genesis 34? Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped by Shechem and her brothers found out. So uh, deceitfully, Simeon and Levi made this agreement with, with uh, Hammer and his son Shechem and told them that if they, if they were all circumcised, then they could commingle with each other and, and it would be okay. And in Genesis 34:25, it says this, Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, the two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took a sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hammer and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. Whoa. So I'm sure the children of Israel are going, man, I don't want that to happen to us. We know that story. You know, they knew and they knew the weakness and the vulnerability that they would be in, but they, yet they still chose to follow the Lord's leading. Let me say this, as faithful as God is, He didn't allow Israel's enemies to have any knowledge of this at all. And here's my point. We cannot be strong in God until we are weak in ourselves. Paul asked the Lord to remove a thorn in his flesh three times, but God didn't do what Paul asked him. And instead, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, is what God said to him. Realizing what God was doing for him, Paul gladly submitted to the Lord and said, "You know, therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am personally weak, then I, in union with Christ, am strong. And until we recognize this fact, God can't work in our lives. We are nothing without the Lord. Our strength lies slowly in the Lord. And when we begin to realize that, He begins to work. Yes, we're weak, but our strength lies in Christ. When we learn this, that's when the Lord can truly bless. Just as He blesses Joshua after the circumcision, and He's told by the Lord, now look at verse 9. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reports of Egypt from you, therefore the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. I like this. He tells Joshua that's because he had rolled away the reproach, the disgrace, the shame from the Israelites, the name of this place is Gilgal, which means rolling or will. But what was so disgraceful? What was the reproach? What was their disobedience to the commands of God? They had not circumcised their children, nor had they celebrated Passover since they were at Mount Sinai 38 years before. Now that was just as well, for the Lord had said regarding Passover, no uncircumcised person may eat of it, but but now the reproach was gone. Now they could, could enter into that place with the Lord and, and the reproach had been rolled away from them. They were free to enjoy the blessings of God. You know, it's getting the sin out of our lives so God can bless. But as long as that sin is there, we're not, we, we can't enjoy the blessings of life. Obedience brings blessing. Look at verse 11. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. 
And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So God brings them into the land in which the, the miracle of manna was, was no longer needed. It was not that God had stopped providing for them. He was just providing now for them in a different way. We know that Paul wrote in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a true statement. But it doesn't promise that all our needs are going to be supplied in a miraculous manner. Okay, Oftentimes, God supplies opportunities for us to toil or to labor, to work for what we need. But this doesn't mean that God helps those who help themselves. either. That may surprise you. That, that phrase is not in the Bible. Nowhere does it say that God helps those who help themselves. But, but God helps us because we can't help ourselves. But in the same way, God may provide you maybe with a little bit extra overtime, that, that, you know, a, week, a week of work, maybe to help you get you out of the financial situation you may, be in, you may be in. A little more work for you. And you go, oh, Lord, I don't want the more work. I just need to help me out of this financial mess. Well, he's providing more work so you can't get out of that financial situation. But if you say no thanks to that overtime, you're saying no thanks to the provision of God. I think you've all heard this story before, but I like it, so I'm going to say it again. It's the story of the tremendous storm that came through a small town, and the whole town was flooded, and it was still raining. And the rescuers came with the SUV to the man's house and said, you need to evacuate. You're going to be flooded. And the guy said, nope, nope, my God should supply all my needs. He'll take care of me. Well, the floods came, and the guy was forced onto his roof, and the rescuer came by with a boat to rescue him. But the man replied, nope, my God should supply all my needs. He'll take care of me. Finally, the man holding on, was holding on on top of his chimney. A helicopter flew over and shouted to the man below to hold on to the rescue line. And the man replied, Nope, my God should supply all my needs. He'll take care of me. Well, the man died. He drowned. And he standing before the Lord and said to the Lord, Lord, you let me down. I kept telling everybody that you supply all my needs and you'll take care of me. And the Lord responded, What do you want? I sent an SUV. I sent you a lifeboat. And finally a helicopter. And you still wouldn't listen. See, back in Joshua, God provided the manna at the time when there was no earthly chance that they would have food provided for them. But now God is still providing for them, but in a different way. And He's calling them to be responsible to receive from Him in that way. Well, now look at verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have come now. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the word describing how Joshua is by Jericho has the meaning of being in the immediate vicinity of. I would picture Joshua, he's leaving, he's going to go check out, maybe do some reconnaissance, checking out how they might attack the city. And he sees Jericho, and Joshua sees a man with a drawn sword. Now, knowing, not knowing if he's an Israelite, he, he's a bit premature, and if he's a Canaanite, he's outnumbered. So Joshua approaches him and says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, the answer is a bit surprising. It was a simple, No. What does that mean? I mean, even in the original language, it's not clear what he was answering. If he's answering, is he answering the last part of the question, meaning, no, I'm not for your adversaries? Or he's saying, no, I'm not for anybody's ally. What he says, though, is, I am the commander of the Lord's army. In the King James, it says, I'm the captain of the Lord's host. 
The Lord's host is a, is a reference to his army of angels. Psalm 148 verse 2 says, Praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. Now, this man of verse 13, he here is their commander, the captain, but he's not an angel. Now, how do we know? Because angels are not allowed to receive worship. Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9, when John saw the angel there, John says, When I heard and saw, I fell down and worshipped before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. But here, we read, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. So this captain of the Lord's host is not an angel. Therefore, who is it? Well, it has to be the Lord himself. And then we read in verse 15, The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that sound familiar? Remember Moses chapter, Exodus chapter 3 verse 5? God said to him, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place which you're standing is holy ground. So I believe this most certainly is uh, the Lord and it's the occurrence of what's called a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. See, the main lesson of Joshua 5 is that we must must uh, be a spiritually prepared people if we're going to do the work of the Lord successfully and glorify His name. Instead of rushing into battle, we must take time to be holy, take time to wait on the Lord and seek the Lord. And when we do, the Lord will come through for us and He'll answer our, our questions. See, Joshua did just that. And as we come to chapter 6, Joshua now receives the instructions from the Lord and, and will be successful in the battle of, of, of Jericho. Now, it's unfortunate that the chapter division is placed here because I believe that the story continues on with Joshua's conversion with the Lord because Joshua asked in verse 14 of chapter 5, what does my Lord say to his servant? Well, after being told to remove his shoes, the Lord answers Joshua's questions in chapter 6. Which, I don't know if we should keep going. Um, there's a lot in chapter 6. Um, let me go ahead and read the first five verses. We'll get a little of it, then we'll probably go back up and, and, uh, and cover it again next week. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down, will fall flat, down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. So you have Joshua, the Lord telling Joshua how this city is going to be conquered. Not by a mighty military attack you know, with their army, but rather in a way that the only the Lord would receive credit for. Look at verse 6. It says, Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city, and let, whom, whom, let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. That's one thing to be Joshua and to be in God's presence and to hear these instructions from the Lord and saying, Yes, Lord. But it's quite another thing to be Israelis, the Israeli army and taking Joshua's word at what's going to happen. I mean, could you imagine being in the headquarters that night listening to this plan? Okay, guys, seven priests are going to come down blowing their trumpets. Okay, then, then we'll play the victory song. Y'all charge and march and attack, right? That's what we're going to do. Well, no, not exactly. What do you mean not exactly? 
Well, you guys, the armies of Israel, yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, yeah, yeah. Well, you're to circle the city in silence once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, you're to circle the city seven times, then make a lot of noise. Circle the city, don't say anything, and then on the seventh day, make a lot of noise. Okay, who else has got a plan? What else should we do? No, really, if we do this, the Lord promises that the walls of the city will fall down. Really? I mean, the point is that without faith in God, not one of these men would have agreed to it. I mean, that's why the book of Hebrews states in Hebrews 11.30, says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. It was going to take a lot of faith. And that's what we're seeing. That's, and we'll stop there for tonight. We'll pick it up in verse 8 next time together. But that's what we're seeing here. Just stepping out in faith, believing God, doing what God has called them to do, and the blessings that will come from that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night tonight, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the promises found in your word that you'll safely see us through whatever difficulty we get through, Lord. Help us, Father, when we're making decisions, Lord, and we see doors opening and shutting, that we would not jump through there without seeking you first, Lord. Lord, your word tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to us. Lord, help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, Lord, and all that we do. Thank you for the faith that we see displayed in Joshua and taking those steps, Lord, of faith. Help us, Lord, to take those same steps, Lord, trusting you each step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.